We're continuing where we left off. It is, again, October 25th, 2020. And we're continuing with the thought of the week and prayer. All right, and for the thought of the week, we have an analogy from John 15. Our Lord draws an analogy about our unique spiritual life and our role on earth. He begins by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, in John 15, 1. In this analogy, Christ is acknowledging his role in the father's plan as the vine. The father is the gardener, the one who planned and planted the vineyard. While Christ has a very central role, the purpose of the whole vineyard comes from the father. I am the vine, you are the branches, in John 15, 5. We are the branches, and we are in him. The subject is fruit-bearing, not salvation. The question is whether we, as the church in this world, will bear fruit. We must realize the fruit we bear does not come from us. Remember, the Father planted the vineyard. It was the Father who designed what type of fruit he wants. If the fruit we bear is not according to the purpose and plan of the Father, it is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned, from Hebrews 16. If we do not know the Father's plan for the church, we certainly cannot produce fruit according to it. Our production is so very important beyond what we know. It requires that we understand the Father's thought before the universe was created. Of course, everyone thinks their works are good works. Well, I am challenging you here because the Father's plan for the church was not made known to men in other generations as his as next as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets from Ephesians 5, 3-5. Do you really know it? The fruit we bear is specific to that plan and must come from the secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. From 1 Corinthians 2, 7. And that is the thought of the week, and I'd like to offer some commentary about the simple salvation, which we said at the very beginning, this is not about salvation, this is about the Father's plan and bearing fruit. And the two are distinct phases. The first thing is salvation in order to come into, um, into Christ, in order to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, so that growing in him is even possible. And we know that salvation is on a need-to-know basis. So this is something that's critical, our salvation, and knowing what God has already done, the work he has completed on our behalf to make that possible. Growing, therefore, after salvation is on a want-to-know basis. This is something that we willingly step into with humility, to understand the Father's plan, which is completely laid out in Scripture. But to the person who is not godly, it can seem as foolishness. 
focus on God and the spirit that he has really given us and let our eyes be opened to the inheritance that he has given us and also the depth to which he has given us access through the spirit. In Jesus' name, I, I, I pray these things um, as we go forward, and that is my commentary on the thought of the week. And now Dave will give us the prayer. Oh, thanks, the wife. So anyone have such a request? Pray for the church universal, Dave. Okay. So I just talk this for our hands. And we thank you for the Lord of grace. Well, Heavenly Father, we are here, Lord, or just finding listen to the word, Father. We ask you, Lord, to give us guidance to the pastor, Father. We ask you, Lord, to pray for our word of truth, Christian church, wherever they may be at, Lord, that we can continue to grow in your fear of grace that you want us to be, Father. We ask you for guidance, Father, for structure that we need, Father. We ask you for those who need healing, Father, those who need special prayer requests, that you would grant us these things, Father. Father, we are here, Lord, to not to look at our own interests, our own interests, Father, but to look only for you as you would have us grow up in the maturity that, we, that, that you want us to be, Father. Father, we ask you these things and other blessings that I have to pass the teacher, your word, Father, so we can continue to grow, Father, in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask you these in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dave. And thank you, Dwight. Appreciate your contribution. So, as you know, we're in John 15, and we're looking at Verse 6, you have notes, hopefully, you can, as you can read in your notes and follow along with me, John fifteen six says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So in your notes, Christ is speaking directly to the disciples, but by extension, he is also speaking directly to us. We must make sure some crucial decisions once we are saved to begin to live the spiritual life. We can see what the Father's desire is here, and we know the role of Christ in our lives. We can also see how to do the Father's will by remaining in Christ. Bearing fruit is not a one-shot decision in our lives. It is a motivation that can develop through the process of remaining in him. We must decide what we will be, what will be the motivation of our lives. Quote, then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Unquote. That's Luke nine twenty three through 25. So we'd like to see if we can unpack 
this verse a little bit. I think it is not new to us, but there are some things that we may see that uh, we haven't seen before. That's why we're always looking at the scripture with expectation. So let's look at the first phrase, if you do not remain in me. So, so we will explore the consequences of our refusal to remain in Christ. I say refusal because it is not the Father's, it's not Christ's or the Holy Spirit's will for us. We should know that if we do not remain in Christ, well, this is this whole thought is taken up here so that we can understand what it means if it if it does happen in our lives. Now, of course, I guess Hebrews 6, 9, I am persuaded better things of you, certainly things that go along with salvation. In other words, I would expect that everybody here shows up here because that's what we want to do. We want to learn what is the will of God for our lives. And now we, we're here voluntarily. You're not paid to be here. You're here because you have a desire to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what I'm hoping that we're doing here. So refusal, even though we may talk about it, and because the scripture does lead us down this road, I am hoping that all of us are not refusing to follow God's will in this in this area of bearing fruit. So, but we need to say it because and and know that if it is found that we don't bear fruit, it won't be the Father's doing, it won't be Christ's doing, it won't be the Holy Spirit's doing. It will be us because we have refused it. So point B is people can reject God's gracious offer of salvation. And they also can reject the Christian way of life. It's a little play on words here because the Christian way of life is really the Christ way of life. And when we say the Christ way of life, what do we mean? We mean, uh, how did Christ live his life? He lived his life through love. His love for the Father, his commitment to the Father, his devotion to the Father's plan. That's, that's what it's around, right? And so we could say the Christian way of life, that's what we mean. We mean the Christ way of life. So moving forward, the Christ way of life is driven by the motivation of love. And so is our way of life. John 14, 31, and Romans 5, 1 through 5. You know 14, 31 talks about the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. That's the Christ way of life. It's motivated, driven by love. And Romans 5, 1 through 5. We covered this in our previous section where we did some Q&A. But once again we must say the importance of our motivation in life has to do with love. It is what we commit ourselves to. It's what we are devoted to. Uh, so let's look at Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since you have been justified through faith, 
we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's salvation. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This grace. Uh, that is not just salvation by grace. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That is a reference to the unique life we have in this, in this age, which is the church age. Now, I just want you to put your finger right there. I'm going to turn right to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm coming back. No worries. I'll come back to Romans. Ephesians 3, uh, here's what, what is said, verse 7 and 8. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So, although I am less than the least of the, all the Lord's people, here it is. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. This is the grace in which we now stand. This grace. Not just, oh, we're saved by grace. No, it is this grace. Now, of course, we know God chose us in him before the creation of the world. We didn't choose God. God chose us. So back to Romans 5, verse 2, where you had your finger. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we know that this hope is, is really the whole impetus or emphasis of our life that's what it is a hope of the glory of god so then he goes into it he says not only so but we also glory in our sufferings right because we know that suffering produces perseverance and we identified that suffering is because we're different from the world suffering is not just being different in and of itself not dressing weird or or saying weird things or going to weird places Different means that we're identifying with the ruler who is uh, is to come. That is Christ. Christ is taking is going to take the reins of this world. He's going to take Satan and grab him by the nap of the neck and throw him into the abyss, where he will be there for a thousand years. He'll come out for a bit and then deceive the nations, but then he will be thrown into the lake of fire. That is the end of Satan. But Christ will rule. All will be then on Christ. So your identification with him now is to the world an affront. Uh, they will hate you. They will fight against you. They will see you as different. You will suffer as a result of it because of Christ. Right? Christ said, don't, don't be surprised. Um, the reason why the world hates you is because it hated me first. Anyway, let's keep on going because that suffering produces perseverance, endurance. And perseverance, in other words, we dig in. We don't, just because people uh, hate us because of who we are, that doesn't deter us. That causes us to dig in because now we know who we are. and We're willing to suffer with Christ in this area. And it produces character in us. Character speaks of integrity, the integrity of our soul. Not because 
we are moral. We don't have integrity towards morality. We have integrity toward the Father's plan and our identity in Christ. That's who we are. That's what we are. We have allegiance to. That is bigger than what is, uh, you know, in the world. What will be whatever we can gain in the world. What's bigger than that is the we have integrity toward God regarding our destiny, our, our hope. It produces in us character, and character produces hope. It determines now identity and destiny. So hope looks at what we do not yet have, but we absolutely, confidently know assuredly that it is true. That is about who we are. We have absolute confidence in this fact. And hope does not put us to shame. So the fact that we, we endured whatever suffering, we stood our ground, and that developed character, and the character develops this hope and we're not ashamed, even though we can't talk about these things in the world freely because people will um, say it's foolishness. They would laugh at us for saying that we are sons. They would laugh at us when we tell them about the destiny that God, the Holy Spirit, has uh, caused us to cry out, Abba, Father, that we have an inheritance. We're heirs of God. And literally that the whole universe will be affected when the glory of the sons of God is revealed. I mean, it's who we are in Christ. We are like him. We are identified with Christ. So that hope, even though that's true, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So along with that hope comes love. And this love is the very seat the motivation of our spiritual lives. It is a motivation that now our identity is tied to. Not only do we identify ourselves with the person of Christ, but now we share in the destiny of Christ. He will, all things are yours, whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, says 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's who we are now. We've identified with it, and we embrace it. We love it. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, we should know that this love is not something we, we can produce or manufacture. This love is supernatural. It comes from God the Holy Spirit. Even when you're reading in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first thing he mentions? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And there's joy and all these other things that are mentioned. But love is what is important. Fruit is the production that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. By us yielding to the Holy Spirit. And what is produced in us? Love. And that love is the very motivation, the core of our spiritual lives. It is the identity that we have and, and the commitment and devotion to our destiny. So that is what we see for ourselves. That is what we yearn for. Like I said, we groan, yearning for the adoption to sonship. What are we saying? God, hurry up and give me my resurrection body? No. What we're saying is, God, I recognize what you've done in us, in me. 
and I long for uh, the completion of your plan. So that when we get to the end of the plan, we know that will satisfy God. We know that that is what God planned for us from eternity past. And it will be a milestone that we long for. Continuing, that's love. That's how we have to see that that is the Christ way of life. When Christ arrived on planet Earth, that is what was the very core, the motivation, is his love for the Father. Point D, let's move on in our notes. There is no need for this phrase, if it is possible. And this is what we're talking about, if you do not remain in me. And I'm saying there's no need for this phrase, if it is not possible for us to refuse to remain in Christ. Yet, it is possible, and there are consequences. So, we, we have this scripture, and I know there are a lot of Christians who, when we say Christians, you know, we have to put quotes around Christian, because if they profess to be Christians, okay, we'll say Christians, but that's only God knows the heart. But there's a lot of Christians who will say, that it is not possible for you to not abide in Christ. But what, if that were not possible, then why would God say it? Why would he say it? And obviously it is a possibility. And God is giving us every rock unturned, everything uncovered, so that we can know exactly the limits of what our spiritual life here is on earth. And we need to know that. What if, God? Okay, well, God says, here's what if. Well, well, tell me about this over here. Can can this be possible? Yeah, he gives us the parameters of what salvation is and what the spiritual life is. He gives it all. I mean, God's not worried about, well, if I say that if you don't remain in me, I'm going to get people, uh, I'm going to worry about people not remaining in me because now they know they can. God's not worried about that. He said what will happen if you do not remain in me? He says it. He's not worried about causing carnality if, <laughs> if, if he puts in there a scripture that allows. This is man thinking. Where people think, well, I better not say that scripture because people will think they get to do anything they want. Well, that's humanistic thinking. God's thinking is, let me give you thoroughly everything you need for your spiritual life. Let me give it to you so you can know. And the motivation truly will be from your free will. Now, God the Holy Spirit is not going to shed love abroad in your heart because there had to be free will decisions that you made all along the way to get there. Right, so your cooperation with the Spirit, according to His Word, is what is needed. Right, we talk about synergy. How it, it, God the Holy Spirit is not going to just make you go through all those stages of spiritual growth without your free will, assenting to it. You must assent, and with God, the Holy Spirit's motivation together, he will lead and guide you into all truth. So that, that is how you want to see that. So point E in our notes, 1E, as believers, our purpose here in the world is defined. Just know that you are not living in the will of God if you choose alternatively. So you can choose to not abide in Christ, but that you should also know with that choice comes consequences, and with that choice, you should know that that is not the will of God. 
for your life. I think it's clear. I think it's it should be clear as you read those first six verses in John 15 that abiding in Christ, remaining in him, is the way to bear fruit. If you do not remain in him, you will not bear fruit. That's verse 5. You, you will not bear fruit. That's clear. And what will happen to somebody who doesn't bear fruit? Well, here we are in verse 6, talking about it. So, it's not God's will. It is God's will that you bear fruit. He has expectations over your life. Point number two in our notes. You are like, if, if you don't, uh, if you do not remain in me, here it is, this next phrase, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. So first thought, in keeping with the metaphor, this is what happens when we refuse the purpose of God for our lives. We are like a branch, and we're going to get into what that is. But notice, it's a metaphor. He's keeping with the metaphor by saying, what will happen if a branch is separated from the vine? What will happen? Well, <laughs> eventually, we're going to get down to verse 3. No, I mean, verse 3. Point number three, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burn. That's what's going to eventually happen. We'll talk about that. But let's get back to our first point here. So, a couple words, thrown away and withers. So that's what will happen. If a branch is separated from the vine, it does not stay in the vine, it's separated from the vine, what will happen? Well, it will fall to the ground. It won't, it won't be... It certainly won't bear fruit. and But further than not bearing fruit, it will be thrown away and it will wither. So let's talk about both of those. So the first point is thrown away. It's like what it says in Hebrews 6, 7. So it's good to read. So if, when we look at these words that are being said in Hebrews 6, it kind of tells us some things here. Verse 7, land that drinks in rain often falling on it, produces a crop. Now get this, useful for those for whom it is farmed. Right? That's useful for those. So God, his expectation is that we bear fruit. That's For God, that's important. That's his point, that we bear much fruit. And if we do bear fruit, he's going to prune us so that we can even bear even more fruit. It's possible that we can go beyond. First of all, the fruit is not us. It's not us. It's beyond what eye has seen, ear has heard, or has entered into the heart of mind. It is divine fruit. It is not our fruit. It is through us. It is the Father's fruit. It does not belong to us. But we have allowed it to come through us. And you know what God says? Even though that's the case, he will reward us for Allowing the fruit to come through us. Imagine that. <laughs> That's what you call gracious. So God has expectations. So what what will he do, right, to the, the branch that just re refuses to bear fruit? Well, it, it, it will be discarded, right? It's, what will it, it, it wants fruit, God, it wants the fruit the Father planted, but what is received is thorns and thistles, wood, hay, straw. And this is not useful 
to the Father. Well, doesn't it's not according to the Father's plan. What will the Father do with that production? Is the question. Well, it will be discarded. I mean, that's, that's it won't be used. God can't use it. It's, it's of no useful purpose for the Father's plan. It is of no useful purpose. Let me say it again for the Father's plan. God can't use that production. So, not abiding in Christ does not mean you don't produce anything. It means that what is produced from you most likely will be driven by what the sin nature motivates you to do. And what that motivates you to do will be thorns, thistles, wood, hay, straw. Father can't use any of that. He discards it. So, there's a couple of verses I, I have here. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32 we have that here. Does God stand by? Does he care to, whether we take that route? Does he, is he concerned? What if God, we decide, well, you know, God, I won't bear any fruit. I'm not going to abide. I'm not going to develop this love Doug is talking about. I'm not going to do any of it. Does God just stand by? I think, no. God is busy. And this is how he sees discipline. There is discipline that he can exact upon us. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32. This is why many of you, many among you are weak. And here it is, weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Uh, do we eat too much? What happened here? No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about discipline. If we So let's read further. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Notice, that is referred to those things as judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way, what does that mean? We're going to lose our salvation? No, it means we're being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. We're being disciplined so we will not finally be condemned with the world. God disciplines his own. There's no doubt about the fact that God disciplines every child that comes to him. So that's what it is. It's a discipline. Can, the God, can God take away your salvation because you don't have works, because you don't bear fruit? Bear, bearing fruit and works is the same thing, just so you know. Can he take away your salvation because you don't bear fruit? Is that possible? No. Because God said that salvation is by grace. It's not of yourselves. It's not by works. It's the gift of God, right? If he says it's not by works, then he's not going to turn around later and say, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I forgot to tell you, it is by works. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It is by grace that we're saved. So he's not going to take away our salvation because he, we don't do works that he said we don't need anyway. In fact, don't bring them because it's not the one who uh, works that is justified. It's the, it's the one who does not work. His faith is credited as righteousness. That's the one who gets justified. Not the one who works. Romans 4, 5. 
So, so that's the thought here, is that they'll be thrown away, it'll be discarded, and that's, and then there's Second Corinthians five ten, right? Second Corinthians five ten. I just quote is this: For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the judgment seat of Christ is also part of the, the thought of each one of us may be will be evaluated for the life we lived in the body. Hey, we're not going to be evaluated for the life we lived as unbelievers. We're evaluated for a life we lived as believers. What about the life we lived as unbelievers? God's not judging you for that. He already knows you're born with none righteous, not even one, none who understand, none who seek after God. None who can do any good. God already knows that's your case because that's the situation you were born in. By nature, you did those things. He's not judging you for that. He's judging you after you're a believer. You're saved by the grace of God. And now, he has some expectations about fruit. However, it has to be done a certain way. He's not saying just produce any old fruit. You've got to produce the fruit that the Father once that he planted that's what's important i know i'm taking a lot of time we're gonna to have to move quicker so point number two it's thrown away it withers what does it mean to wither and some of the uh, uh, desiccate or by implication to shrivel or mature so when i looked at mature and i'm wondering why does mature in there for withers it's it's this is uh, this is what Strong says the word means in Greek. So mature has to do with what happens if a fruit, a piece of fruit, matures. If it matures too much, it begins to dry up. That's what happens. If you ever seen a piece of fruit, all the juices begin to dry up in that piece of fruit. That's what withers means. And 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 then it continues dry up, pine away, be ripe, overripe wither right these are ways that you know this word can be translated it is not connected to the vine so obviously that's what's going to happen it's going to dry up and therefore it is in a deteriorating or declining state that's what happens if of the branch is disconnected from the vine it can, certainly fruit bearing is out of the question uh, first of all that branch is not even healthy so we don't want to think about a branch that is not attached to the vine bearing fruit. It will not bear fruit. So now we're asking, well, what's going to happen to that branch? And what is the branch? That's The branch is us in the world. This is the physical extension of ourselves in the world. What, what do we look like in the world? That's what it is. That's the branch. Whether we will do good or bad as believers, just like it says at the judgment seat of Christ. So these are not words we want to use to describe our spiritual lives. We, in other words, we know this is we like it says in Hebrews. I have better things to think about when it comes to you. I know you're going to do the right thing, and this is what I would rather think about when it comes to our spiritual lives. I don't want you to think that your spiritual life is going to look like this. This is why we're here today, so that we could understand the intricacies of what is particular about our spiritual life. 
right, let's keep going. So point three, what happens in this state? So Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, let's look at it. Hebrews 12, I'm going to turn there. We've kind of hinted toward it, but let's read the whole thing. Hebrews 12, verse 3 through 17. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you may you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we've got to be looking at Christ. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's death. That's what he's like. Christ died resisting. You have not done that. And you have completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons. His son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son so think about what he's saying here don't make light of it in other words don't think that the Lord's discipline is nothing oh God what's going to do just slap me on the hand I get to keep doing what I want to do no problem no there are consequences to a branch that disconnects or refuse, refuses to be connected to the vine. There are consequences. God is saying, here's how it works. That's why I want to read this in detail. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. So, notice, God. that's one of the ways God can make things more difficult for you. In other words, discipline is not just to make things difficult for you. It's to get your attention. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. That's what is the what you need in order to grow up. For what children are not disciplined by the Father? This is basing this on a human analogy as well. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons, and not daughters at all. In other words, of course the Father's disciplining you. Of course he is. You didn't know? And if that's not the case, that means if God's not disciplining you at all, then either you're not a son or or something. That's what he's saying here in verse 8, 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Notice, turn this around. Let's look at this differently. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? In other words, discipline is good for us. So we're talking a couple of ways of discipline. There's punitive discipline, and there's training discipline. We're all under the training discipline, but sometimes we need both. We just have to admit that. Uh, so... So the fathers, they disciplined us for a little while, they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. In other words, that we, we may walk according to truth, what, what God has set us apart unto, that we can now walk according to that. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It always was painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest 
of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Again, an agricultural analogy, a harvest here. What discipline produces in us. It, it brings us to humility. It brings us to our senses. So it's important. So here's what we need, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the feeble arms and the weak knees. Right? These are things that are depicted as though you know, we, we, we can't do anything for God. We're, we're weak, we're feeble. Make paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. In other words, all those things God talked about discipline, he's given us a couple analogies here of, of how discipline can benefit us. Right? It, it causes us to be weak, right? and, and then even disabled to a point, but God has the answer. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Notice, this is not a salvation passage. This is how you're going you're gonna to be able to view the Father. You can't see the Father when you don't have a disciplined life. And this discipline, the Father is, it has you in training, and not only just training, but as we said, sometimes it has to be punitive. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is interesting how this can happen to us in our spiritual lives. We can allow a root of bitterness to grow up in us. And then people will be defiled by our bitterness. Right? It's infectious to other people. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. Or like is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. He's given you an analogy of how Esau was sort of a base person, really not caring about spiritual things. Lived his life really uh, through his animalistic instincts, you know, not really focusing on intellectual spirituality, but just base and, and he didn't care anything about the inheritance. So he gave it away. And I want food. I'm hungry. So I'll, it doesn't matter what you say. I'll just take it. Afterward, this is his attitude afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, uh, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears. He could not change what he had done. He could not take it back. So... There is consequences to not living according to the Father's plan. There are consequences. And we, we don't want to say that doesn't matter. These verses to me say it does matter. And we ought to be trained by this discipline. We ought to correct our path, make level paths for our feet so that the lame may walk, and, you know, may not be disabled, but rather healed. And it, it, being out of the vine is crippling for us. So th that's what happens in this statement. It, it is not, oh, okay, Sarah, Sarah, it doesn't really matter. What will be, will be. No. Listen, God has the right to discipline. 
He has expectations. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which belongs to Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 6. So, point B here in our notes, back to the notes here. The believer is never thrown away. The believer himself. Why? Because he has the foundation. And this is a couple things here to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, having the foundation. Now, this is what is important. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So they were not arguing about the foundation here. All of them had the right foundation, which is Jesus Christ. So... Once you have that foundation, that's it. You can't be thrown away. Just like it says in verse 15, if what you have built is burned up, <clears throat> the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Even though as, as one escaping through the flames, even if you suffer, if you everything is burned up, you still got the foundation. The foundation is Christ. That's salvation. That's not of works. You didn't receive the foundation because you, you built on top of the foundation. Right? And so you've got to be careful as a builder, that's a minister here, how you build. And you have to be caref careful as one who is a parishioner what they are building, what building materials they are using. God's you, You're not going to get to the judgment seat of Christ and cop a plea and say, God, well, you know, I was under so-and-so's ministry. That's why I didn't bear fruit. It's not going to be good. It's not going to fly. You're responsible. So when you have God, the Holy Spirit, that's the ministry you're under. And God's going to point out to you those times where you have resisted the Holy Spirit. Continuing on. So, point C in our notes. Points. Well, actually, there's more. The land that, you know, the land is the foundation. So if you look at Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, back in point B, you notice that land, that, you know, the land, there's nothing, even if everything that's on the land is burned, the land is still there. So the production that's on the land, whether it be a crop, useful for those who, for whom it is formed, or whether it be thorns and thistles. The land is preserved. Why? Because the land is the foundation. The land is, is the believer who has accepted and has you know, received Christ as his Lord and Savior. Point C now. Consider how far you have fallen. This is a quote in Revelation 2.5. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Notice Revelation 2.5 is saying that you, you can have a change of mind. So if you're in this state and you come to yourself, probably through discipline, through training, through discipline, consider how far you have fallen. Right? You, you are coming to yourself. And so now what does God say to you? Have a change of mind. And do the things, what do you do with a change of mind? 
you do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Oh, God, this is a church, though. God is referring to a church. And this church is the church of Ephesus, just so you know in Revelation 2.5. He's telling them that he could remove them. The lampstand, Christ says, I am the light that's in the lampstand. God's going to remove the lampstand means there'll be darkness. I says, I am the light of the world. Those who don't follow me walk in darkness. So even though he's referring to a church here, individually, this is how it will be. Individually, you'll be like a Christian, but there is no Christ's way of life in you. You'll be saved, but others are not going to be able to look at you. In fact, others will be defiled by your life. Just like it said in Hebrews. So repent is an option here to have a change of mind. You consider... Well, God brings you to repent. There's the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, says Romans. So he will come and he will remove the lampstand from its place. And then, let's continue on. Such branches are picked up. This is, let's read the whole phrase again. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Point number three, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let's read it. Such branches. Those in the state of drying up from refusal to remain in the vine. They are disconnected from the vine, but they still may may be, there still may be opportunity to repent. There still could be doesn't mean once you're disconnected from the vine and you begin to wither that it's all over for you. And one thing we can say, if it's, we know, we saw, and for this cause, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So God is in control of that. How do you know have you cr- that you've crossed the point of no return? How do you know? Well, one thing we could say is if we're alive, then <laughs> that means God has a plan for our life. We can still execute his plan if we're alive. But if we're gone, if we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, well, then no more work to be done. You're no longer on the battlefield. So just think, there's opportunity for you. I don't care what you've done. It's not about sin here. All of your sins were paid. They can't hinder you from salvation. So the, what's at stake here is bearing fruit. So what we're trying to understand is repent means have a change of mind about the way you were living. <laughs> Start abiding in Christ. Develop what is needed to abide in Christ. That the love, the hope, understand. Reinforce those things. Consider how far you've fallen. Point B. Eventually, in God's timing, such branches are picked up. <laughs> when it says when God picks up the branches, branches laying on the ground, withered, and it's been kind of cast off, discarded. God has already said, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not the fruit I'm trying to get. So it's discarded. So what happens? They're removed from the battlefield. This is a 
it's hard to say. I, I don't want to even say this, but yes, God will remove you. God is the one. I know people say, oh, it's Satan. Satan came to kill and destroy. Well, in this case, God is the one who can remove you or will remove you from this earth. And when we read in Revelation, well, it's in Isaiah, God calls it his strange work. What was that? That's where he allows a Gentile nation to come and to conquer his nation, Israel. He calls that his strange work. Well, why did God allow a Gentile nation to conquer his, his priest nation? It's because of their disobedience. And their recalcitrance, their stubbornness. God had to discipline them in this manner. He didn't throw them away. He says, Oh, that's it. I'll never want. No, he says, I'm going to have this is a discipline for you. It's hard. No discipline is easy. I'm just relating this what happened in Israel. But relate this to what can happen to you. Think about it. No discipline is pleasant. It's a strange thing to be saying that God's going to remove a, a believer from the battlefield. He does it, though. We read it, 1 Corinthians. Right? We read it. Eventually, God's time, he will do it. So they'll be removed from the battlefield, literally. For we know, I'm going to quote 2 Corinthians 5.1. Look, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... Now, I want to say, this is, this is more from a positive point of view. Because it says that, you know, Paul is saying, you know, we're suffering, uh, we're on the point, we apostles, you know, you know, and if, you know, we have to give ourselves to God, and on the inside, uh, we're, we're being renewed, but on the outside, we're wasting away. So if this earthly tent we live in, is destroyed. Now, how is it destroyed? It could be destroyed through deterioration. It could be destroyed through persecution. There could be martyrs. There could be lots of reasons why it could be destroyed. But guess what another reason is? God could destroy the tent that we live in. But if that happens, what happens? We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. That's our destiny. So I said, um, that's 2 Corinthians 5.1, but you can, ought to compare that with 1 Corinthians 11.29-32, where it says that God can remove people so that they will not be condemned with the world. We saw an example of that in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. And they Wanted, what they were trying to do was gain some ascendancy, some position in the church by telling, we gave all our money to the church. People were like, wow, you gave all your money. Wow, you're really devoted to the church. When really, they were lying about it. They held back some of the money for themselves. God didn't even require that they give all their money, but it was their maniacal contriving that they wanted to deceive people and make them think that they were more than what they were. God disciplined them with death on the spot. So it happens. God will destroy the body that you live in. He can do it. It's up to him. We don't know when that is. 
The branch could be laying there. You don't know. God knows. We can't judge this. Point C. What is next? Okay, so they're thrown into fire and burned. So the fire burned. Let's look at that. Fire is used in three ways in the scripture. This is what we need to know. When we see the word fire and burned, fire represents judgment of believers. And there's, listen, there are so many scriptures in this area. I just jotted down a few for you and scriptures that we're already familiar with. So, but if you want to look through the Bible, you will find that fire is used for judgment of believers, but it doesn't mean that they lose their salvation. It's talking about their production. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, you know that well. If any man builds on this foundation, the day will declare it, but the day will try every man's work to see what sort it is. The fire will, will try each person's work, judge each person's work. What he has built survives. You know the story. Second Corinthians five ten. For we must all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment. Right. That's so. Notice if you look at First Corinthians three eleven and Second Corinthians five ten, what's in common? Judgment. And First Corinthians three it talks about fire. Second Corinthians talks about judgment of the believer. It's not about salvation. And then six six eight. It's endangered land that. Uh, does, does it produces thorns and thistles is in danger of being cursed and is it will be burned it's judgment same type of thing the foundation is sure uh, one day we won't have to talk about this but obviously people who you will interact with will need to hear the perspective and be reminded of fact that salvation is free it's not of works it's not in view when it talks about the judgment of a believer if, if your body is destroyed does not mean you will be condemned with the world you will not be condemned with the world second fire represents temporal judgment temporal and final judgment <clears throat> for unbelievers there's lots to consider as well so Luke 16, 24, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was in fire. What does he mean? He was, he was in a place of judgment. And then Revelation chapter 29. Let's go to Revelation 20 just so we could. Because temporal judgment is here as well as uh, eternal judgment for unbelievers. So 9 says, they marched around across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Same kind of fire in Matthew 25 that removes unbelievers from the earth. Fire came down. It was temporal judgment. It's not the final judgment. Temporal judgment, God declares that he will remove a person with fire. So then, uh, not only that, you have uh, 14 and 15. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Notice the places of judgment, death and Hades, thrown into the lake of fire. 
the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, the place of final judgment. Fire, when you see fire, don't think, oh, hellfire, eternal judgment, the lake of fire. Don't. Some people think that, right? As they read fire, that's it. They can't. I think there's another verse in Hebrews chapter 10. I might just turn to that. So, 10 and then 26, right? 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sins is left. What's left? But only fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So notice the fire represented here. Again, it refers to judgment. Believers are being the ones being talked about. The fire is going to consume the enemies. And if you side with the enemies, what's going to happen? You're going to also receive a temporal judgment. Yeah, this this is this is for real for believers, but it's not talking about losing your salvation. So this is these are things that people have to come to grips with. So then, point number three, as I said, fire does re- represent literal fire. And we're not even going to go through those scriptures, because hopefully, you know, there are plenty of them that talk about a fire was started and they ate fish over the coals and so forth. We're going to skip through that one. Point four, always allow the context. Here's what the, you have to do. Always allow the context to determine the proper use of the word fire or burning, lake of fire. It, the context will help you understand what is meant by fire. But don't be afraid because you've seen fire in the context that, oh no, this is hellfire. No, it doesn't mean that. Not all the time. So always let the context determine its proper use. Point D, we should discuss God's timing and administering bishop discipline. Since we are blind to the heart of man, we cannot judge properly. So leave this work to God. You can't know what's what's going on on the inside. You don't know. So we got to leave it to God. We, we don't want to start supposing, oh, you see that person over there suffering? Yeah, that's because God is whooping them. He's disciplining them. You, you can't say that. And you don't ever want to... Say that the person, you know, because of a slice of life that you could see on the ex, on the external part of it, that person, that somehow they're lost, that God has given up on them or something. You can't know that. It's no, that's not for you. That's not your place. First Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's read what Paul says. He says, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. See, we're stewards. We God has given this trust to us. You know, he's talking about those apostles, right? Those of us, servants of Christ. How should we look at them? They've been entrusted with the words of God, but it, they've been entrusted with the with the mysteries they're giving them to us, right? Because they've been entrusted so that they could communicate them to us. 
So now that we have them, we, if we were not Paul and the apostles, we are those who receive them. We now must prove faithful. And Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I, don't, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent because his conscience is clear. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. What time is that? That's the judgment seat of Christ. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Didn't we just say here about love? That's the motive that will lead us to the fruit that God desires. The judgment seat of Christ is where the record will be written. God already knows what it is, but now it will be revealed. He will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Not until, right? You could think your motive is the right motive and maybe you're operating on some strong, but it's not love for the Father's plan. If it's not, it will be revealed because this is our calling. This is what God is interested to be produced through us, the fruit that he wants, that he desires. Paul says, I'm not even going to judge myself. I'm not worried about you judging me. I'm not worried about me judging myself. And I'm not worried about any human court judging me. I'll wait until God judges me. That's what's important. And I would hope that's important for you. God has expectations for us to bear fruit. How do we do it? This is point E. God has expectations. I know we've been to the scripture, John we got to look at it again. John chapter, uh, here it is, um, 12. And this is what I haven't said about this verse. We've talked a lot about it, but I haven't said this. So, verses 24 to 26. Very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So this is another agricultural analogy. In this, a, a kernel of wheat has to fall to the ground and die in order for it to produce many seeds. And you know, notice the process there. So it's just a little seed, just a little kernel, but it falls to the ground, it dies. What happens when it dies? Then it is able to produce another uh, stalk of weed. That's, I don't even know how weed is produced, but, but if we use any other analogy of apple tree, if an apple seed falls to the ground, it can create, like apple, one apple seed can create an apple tree. And that apple tree can produce not just one seed each, many seeds. That's the analogy. I mean, you can bear much fruit. Anyone who loves their life, notice he's including us in this. It's not just him. His sojourn on the earth 
is our sojourn on the earth. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. That's what it means to die, right? Anyone who hates, well, that's what it means to live. You will lose your life. Put to death, therefore, right? You have to die. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So hating your life means to die, to kill it, right? To do, I might have said that backwards. Either way, you, you get the point that he's saying here. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So why would, wouldn't Christ say, well, you, I will honor you. Because the one who serves Christ is serving the father. The one who loves me loves the one who sent me. That's what the feet washing, the foot washing revealed to us. Well, that was special. So it's important that we, we know these. It's an agricultural analogy, again, about a seed going to, going to go into the ground. And, and then what will happen as a result of that? It will bear much fruit. The same thing as what he's saying in John 15 for us. And point F, if you do not know your calling, you cannot live a life worthy of it. You certainly can't. It, it, it takes knowledge. And that knowledge has to be parlayed into wisdom. That wisdom has to be, and all of this can't even be executed at all, apart from God the Holy Spirit leading and guiding. He's the lead here. You're not the lead. Holy Spirit is the lead in all of this. Point G, bearing fruit says, you love the Father's eternal purpose. That's what it's saying. You love it. That's what it means to bear fruit according to it. You love what the Father's eternal purpose is. Ephesians 3, 10, and 11 talk about the eternal purpose of the Father and the integration of the church with Christ. Point H, the purpose, right, which is from the Father, through Christ, through you, to the divine fruit of the Father. So we could talk about what would happen if you don't bear fruit, but I would much rather talk about what would happen if you do bear fruit. Because I believe this is the destiny for all of us. It is certainly a potential. It is, should be the hope of your calling. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this privilege of being called to be able to bear fruit for you. As we grow in grace, we pray that you will give us, equip us, lead us, and guide us because we it is our purpose to fulfill your purpose. We thank you for this calling. We thank you for those who are here and listened as you know patiently as we've gone through the intricacies of these verses. And we pray that as we continue to think on these things that we will continue to develop wisdom around bearing fruit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
and now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forevermore let the church say Amen Amen